We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. we got another jam-packed show coming up. And, of course, the big story of the day, and we were talking about this yesterday, was the situation around the Greenbelt and the land swap and uh, the, the report from the Auditor General and the Ethics Commissioner of the province uh, in regard to the housing minister and the chief of staff and all of that. And I said here yesterday, man, uh, he's got to go. He's got to go. And uh, it ain't going to happen. He's staying. He's staying, and I'm kind of surprised at that. Um, but I want you know we'll play some clips here in just a sec. It's going to be interesting to see how they play, how this plays out, uh, because my guess is they're they're banking on the fact that the housing crisis and affordability and all of that is the immediate hot button issue. And the green belt stuff is something that's going to be have to be managed for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years because it ain't, it is not going away. So that's what I'm guessing because he is staying on. He accepts full responsibility. He says he's moving forward. Uh, he relied too much on staff. That's totally unacceptable as it is unacceptable with the uh, prime minister. But he said that mistakes were made and such. Here's what the prime minister had to say. We're going to play you an interesting, uh, an interesting, uh, uh question and answer between Colin DeMello of Global News, our Global News uh, Queens Park Bureau chief. He's been on the show many times. Great reporter. And uh, this is an exchange between the Premier and Colin when Colin asked him questions on this situation. Listen. At what point do, do you take personal responsibility here and how are people to have trust in your leadership? Well, th- thank you for that, Colin. And I'm, I'm sure you just walked down the street from your home that you have a home. But do you know how many people don't have a home, Colin? There's hundreds, hold on, there's hundreds of thousands of people that home, hold it, there's hundreds of thousands of people that don't have homes. And he continues on this with Colin. Because I know you, Colin, a year down the road, if we don't have the homes, you're the first person that's going to be up here saying, why didn't you build the homes? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Well, Colin, guess what? We're going to build homes. We're going to build homes until people have the same opportunity that you have. You have a nice home down the street. But guess what? There's hundreds of thousands of people that don't have your opportunity, that don't have the good paying job that you have. That's the difference. All right. Uh, and then the prime minister or sorry, the premier goes on uh, on building homes. You can run these two clips probably together, uh, Tom. Minister Clark has a, a tough job and and uh, his goal is to continue building homes. I, I, I saw the report. I read a good chunk of it last night. And uh, admittedly, uh, the process could have been a lot better. And I, I agree. I'll have an opportunity to sit down again with Mr. Clark and, and discuss the matters. But uh, our number one goal is to continue building these homes for, for people uh, out there that are in desperate need. We're going to work with Minister Clark like we work with the other ministers to fulfill our mandate. Our mandate is to build homes. It's as simple as that. And we're going to continue moving forward on that mandate of building 1.5 million homes. All right. So let's listen from the housing minister, Steve Clark. Here is his apology. Is that enough? I I want to take uh, this opportunity to first acknowledge that yesterday's report of the integrity commissioner pointed to very clear flaws uh, to the process that led to the removal of the lands and being removed from the Greenbelt. I, uh, I accept that I ought to have had greater oversight uh, over my former chief of staff and over the process. And to Ontarians, I want to say very sincerely that I apologize that I did not. All right, and this is the objective, which is building more homes from the housing minister. Our government's motivation has always been to build homes, including um, those that uh, came about as a result of uh, the changes we made to the Greenbelt. Our government recognizes that uh, we have a generational housing supply problem. We have a crisis of affordability in our province. We remain committed, and I remain committed to work with uh, Premier Ford uh, on the task that he's given me, and that's to 
uh, get homes built to tackle that housing supply crisis. We're going to keep moving forward with our goal of getting at least 1.5 million homes built by 2031. But I, I recognize that the work has to be done in a manner that builds trust with Ontarians, um, uh, in addition to the fact that we need to build those homes for people who need them and, and deserve them. All right, that's the Housing Minister Steve Clark earlier today in a news conference. He is not stepping down, uh, and they're rushing. This is what happens when you rush. This is what happens when you try to make up for 20 years of doing absolutely nothing. So we get we, we are where we are. We get what we deserve. You don't build, you create a shortage. Then all of a sudden you go, build, 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 and mistakes are going to be made. we got to keep on this. we got to make sure... That mistakes aren't made. We got to make sure that we, we, we decide, we consult on what is best for everyone, just not those on the political extremes, either the left or the right. Because again, the number one issue here is there's a housing crisis and it has to be fixed. And a lot of the people on the left who've been screaming about all of this have failed to do that. And rather than Admitting that and coming up with a plan, there don't touch the green belt. Don't touch the green belt. Don't touch the green belt. The green belt discussion is going to be going on for the next 20 years minimum. Minimum. Why? Because we are now in a housing crisis as a result of it and more Canadians coming into the country. Simple supply side economics. Simple. August 31st, between 6 p.m. and midnight, Cable 29. Super Gala, much music, directly by... Tonight, live from coast to coast, the launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel. The nation's music station, much music. Featuring the world video premiere of Rush, The Enemy Within, and The Spoons Tell No Lies. Plus, the Canadian video premiere of Yes, Elvis Costello, The Fix, Human League, Slave, Culture Club, and a few surprises. Get on with it here. All right. All right. Heck of a way to start a rock and roll show. Yeah, that's a little bit of a snap. <laughs> All opening, right. There you yeah, go. So. Uh, there you go. There is the beginning of much music when, I'm on, when, it, when it went on the air at 6 o'clock on this day back in 1984. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music. He is here now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yep. So far, so good. So we remember when all this started, oh my goodness, times have changed. I, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. It's amazing. It's great. And then you fast forward to 2023 and my, how things have changed yet again. And what happened to Much Music? Well, Much Music was an MTV. We're, was supposed to kill radio. I mean, you know, video killed the radio yep. star. Never yep. quite worked out that way. A uh, little bit of background here. Uh, MTV went on the air on August 30, August 1st, 1981. And for about three years, Canadians looked enviously south of the border, wishing we had our own music video channel. Um, but for a while, it was illegal. Uh, we could have the big satellite dishes. I remember many bars having something in MTV yeah. from the satellite. Um, but the CRTC looked down on that because they couldn't license this music, this music video station. So uh, they put out, knowing that well, everybody thought that this was going to be the next big thing, and it was for a while. They put out tenders to see who could put on, uh, who could put a, a domestic music video channel on the air. Uh, Chum Radio won, and you know Chum Much, get it? Uh, yeah. Got everything together by this day on um, in 1984. And uh, for years after that, MTV was still illegal in Canada, and we could only get, uh, well, in fact, we only had one video music channel, and that was Much Music. So how long was it vital? How Because it seems, well, like lots of things in rock and roll, pop music, it's, it's a flash in the pan. Was it that? How long was it successful? It was successful for a very long time. If you grew up in this country, you probably had a, a big shiny tune CD or two or three or four or five. <laughs> Those were some of the biggest selling compilations this country has ever seen. Some of them sold even a million copies. Um, people would rush home and wait to see their hope to see their favorite video after school. Um, 
eventually Much Music ended up having a uh, second channel, Much More Music. And, you know, music videos drove the economy of the recorded music industry from about 1980 in this country, from 1984 uh, through to about the end of the 1990s. Then we begin to see some slip there. And that's because the internet came along and we no longer had to wait for the videos that we wanted to see. We could see them online. And by the time YouTube shows up in the mid-aughts, there was no need to have a station that showed music videos. We remember initially these were all marketing tools from the record company to sell the music. Is it still as viable as a marketing tool today? Well, music videos are still recognized as an art form. For example, in Canada, we have the Prism Music Prize, which honors the best in Canadian music video production every year. It's a pretty big deal. I think you get $20,000 and a whole bunch of gear to go along with it. So music videos are still a thing. It's just that they're a bit smaller than they used to be. There are examples of of videos from Madonna, Michael Jackson, uh, Puff Daddy, you know, millions of dollars, millions of dollars were spent on these mini movies. And nobody really worried about it too much when people were buying CDs because you would recoup all that uh, with with CD sales. But when CD sale, when you know physical music sales started falling through the floor in the early 2000s, there was no appetite and no money for these big budget productions. So that started to slip a little bit. Uh, however, you know, but at the same time, the equipment that we use to make music videos Mm. became much more accessible, much cheaper, much more powerful than, you know, even something that we would have used in 1994, 1995. So uh, music videos are still a thing. I mean, just look at YouTube. What did I see today? Um, Yeah, I saw a new list of the biggest view, most viewed YouTube videos of all time. And there's a lot of music videos there and they've been seen you know, billions of times. In the case of uh, Despacito by Luis Fonsi, it's been seen 7 billion times, Gangnam Style by uh, Psy. I mean, he would have never had that huge one-hit wonder had it not been for that Mm. music video. Uh, And then we can look at something as as simple as uh, Baby Shark, 13 billion views of that music video. So, yeah, there's still a thing. It's just that we're not watching them on television anymore. Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music on this day in 1984, Much Music launches in Canada. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. You too. Affordability is always issues. Uh, we're arguing now over housing and green belts and just get the housing built. Just give us some sort of relief. And whether that's affordability with groceries or uh, home heating or fuel for your car, what have you, uh, it's just, it's, it's just, people are at their wits end. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation hosted its annual gas tax honesty conference, news conference in the nation's capital to shine a light on the high costs of federal gas taxes. And I remember hearing a report just a few days ago that said, we pay more in tax than we do on the essentials to live. So it would be seen if you want some relief, because a lot of the times you can't control world prices, but you can control tax. And, you know, in the same breath, we've, you know, the prime minister has been in office for eight years. Now he's talking about building a new prime minister's residence, which we all know we need, and the next two prime ministers won't see that. But now? Like, do that at the beginning of your tenure, when times were sunny ways. But I guess now he's hearing all the talk about housing, so uh, you know what? Come to think of it, I need a new house, too. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, Franco Terrazano is with his Canadian Taxpayers Federation federal director and has once again pointed out where uh, the money is going when it comes to gas tax. And Franco's with us now. Franco, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's all just so ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it getting kind of ridiculous? Like you hear the prime minister, you hear these politicians uh, talk about affordability all time, all the time. But the one thing that the federal government could do today, folks, immediately, presto, the easiest and fastest way for the federal government to make your life more affordable would just to be to scrap its carbon tax. 
You know, if the federal government scrapped its carbon tax, it would save the average family in Ontario this year almost 500 bucks. Almost 500 bucks. And, and that is the easiest, the fastest way for the Trudeau government to provide relief. And it refuses to do it. Uh, do we really realize how much we pay in tax per liter of gas? Well, let me break it down for you. So in Ontario, you're paying about 52 cents per liter every time you go to the pumps in just taxes. It's about 32% of the pump price. But the reason, that's actually uh, lower than the average in Canada. And the reason it's lower than the average in Canada is because the Ford government did the right thing and cut fuel taxes. Now, let's talk about the big culprit. The big tax culprit at the pumps is the Trudeau government. You're paying 31 cents per liter in federal taxes every time you go to the pump. 31 cents per liter in federal taxes alone. And I've got some bad news, as I usually do when I come on this show. Uh, but the federal government's tax take is going up over the next couple of years because of Trudeau's planned carbon tax hikes. And a lot of these taxes are taxes on taxes. Oh, it's the worst. Not only does the federal and Ontario government tax the fuel, but then they add their sales tax on mm -hmm. top of those taxes. So there is a tax on tax. Okay. So the tax on tax costs about four cents per liter. Now you might say that doesn't sound that big right away, but listen to this folks. If you have a larger sedan, let's say you're driving a Honda Accord. Well, the tax on tax alone this year will cost you about 140 bucks. Not the fuel, not all the taxes. Just the tax on tax will cost you about 140 bucks this year if you're fueling up that large sedan uh, once a week. And, you know, I think what's also getting people's attention here, Franco, is not, as you're saying over and over and over again, that these taxes just keep going up uh, and affordability obviously going down. It's we're not seeing results like th this just seems to be a revenue generator for the government, it's we're sitting at like 1.5 percent greenhouse gas emissions. I'm not sure how you get that much lower, uh, and, but it's not going down. And so where does the money go? Like, why are we doing this? So uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, two things. Right. I mean, number one, this isn't doing anything for the environment. Right. And I think people are understanding that no matter how expensive you make it to live in Canada, that's not reducing global emissions yeah. or 1.5% of global emissions. So making it almost unaffordable for someone to fuel up their minivan or making it almost unaffordable for someone to put hamburger meat, milk, cheese in their grocery cart, because carbon taxes increase the price of food as well. Making it more expensive to live here in Canada or in Hamilton or in the GTA does absolutely nothing to actually help the environment and reduce emissions. Number two, I think people are also getting fed up because they pay higher taxes every single year. Almost half of our family's budget is going to the tax man. And what are we getting out of it? Like, I don't think anyone is really seeing the benefit of half of their family's budget going to taxes. Uh, you talked about uh, future taxes with gas. We hear that coming up. Uh, obviously, the prime minister, he, he's, he's not letting up on this. He isn't reducing the schedule in any way. What are we going to see in the near future when it comes to increased fuel prices? Right. So right now we're paying right in federal taxes alone. You're paying about 31 cents per liter of gas in federal taxes. Uh, by 2030, we're going to be paying 74 cents per liter in federal taxes alone. 74 cents per liter in federal taxes alone. Let me put that into perspective. In just seven years, when you go to the pumps to fuel up your family's minivan, let's say, you'll be paying about 56 bucks extra just in federal taxes. So where is our carbon tax money going? I mean, is this just going into uh, to fuel general coffers? Is it is it going into uh, help transition? Is it going to companies to build electric vehicles? Where is it going? The money that we are collecting from the from the the carbon tax? Well, the government says that, you know, it's it's coming back with rebates to people. Uh, but we're over here scratching our heads. I mean, obviously, you can't raise taxes. Re, uh, skim some off the top to have the bureaucrats administer the tax and then somehow make everyone better off with rebates. Uh, if you believe that, like I always say, you, we've got some Ocean View property in Calgary to, to, to sell you. But look, the parliamentary budget officer is the government's independent budget watchdog. It's, it's crunched the numbers. And get this, folks, for the average family in Ontario, even after the rebates, the carbon tax is still costing the average family uh, almost 500 bucks this year. By 2030, remember the tax bill is only going up. By 2030, Trudeau's two carbon taxes will cost the average family more than 2,000 bucks every single year, even after those rebates. So the government talks about the rebates and we say, okay, well, hold on a second. 
why don't you just stop making life more expensive in the first place and scrap the tax? Uh, up until now, people were, were quite, uh, quite content to pay this. People felt that, you know, I'm paying, but that's my responsibility and I'm fixing the climate. But they're understanding they're not getting a trade off of this. They're not getting anything. They're not getting results. Well, I think the higher that the carbon tax go, the more that people are really going to stop and think about it, right? Because people are saying, well, hold on a second, right? Gas prices are through the roof. Um, the, the price of groceries are through the roof. Uh, home heating bills are going to be through the roof in a couple months here. So I think people are really stopping to think about this as the tax increases year after year and as the cost of living continues to go up. And I think the more people think about it, you know, the more people are like, well, what are we getting out of this? And clearly, a carbon tax in Canada, when the vast majority of countries, more than 75% of countries around the world, don't even pay a single national carbon tax, it's pretty clear that a carbon tax, let alone two carbon taxes in Canada, don't do a single thing for the environment. So as the cost of living goes up, as the government seems more and more detached from the realities facing Canadians, I think more people are really starting to think things through and realize that the carbon tax increases the cost of living, but doesn't help the environment. Uh, we only got a few seconds left, Franco, but 75% of the countries aren't using this. What makes the carbon tax such a great, great thing then? Why, why are we using it? It's not. We shouldn't be, right? Uh, we all care about the environment and caring about the environment is important. But you know what else is important? Making sure people actually have enough money to afford the basics. And that's something I don't think our government is doing very, uh, a very good job with right now. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, explaining well, the gas, the tax on gas that you pay every day or every time you fill up. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on today. The federal liberals are seeing a dive in popularity among younger voters once the core of their base falling 23 points behind the conservatives by the end of August. According to new polling from Nano's research, the data shows the liberals in a distant third place for 18 to 29 year olds with 15.97 percent compared to the conservatives in the NDP with 39.2 percent and 30 percent respectively. To talk more about all of this, Nick Nano's is with us, chief data scientist, founder of Nano's Research in here now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good and great to join you and all your listeners. So, Nick, does anything surprise you here or just and maybe suggest maybe I'll suggest the, the speed of which this drop has, is starting to take place? Uh, what surprises you about this? What stands out? Well, there are a number of things that surprise me because, you know, in the past, when the when liberals lost support among young people, they usually went to the NDP, right? This time, they're not just going to the NDP. The conservatives are benefiting. And to me, it speaks to the situation where for many young people, you know, they graduate from school, they're unemployed or underemployed, they're struggling to pay for the groceries, they can't find a place that's affordable to rent, they can't even think about owning a home someday because houses are unaffordable. And uh, as a result, I think for some young people, they're looking at the conservatives as an alternative because of the economic stress that they're under. And then for other young people, they're still going with the NDP because, you know, they don't think that the liberals are probably moving fast enough on some of these progressive policies that they want. You know, Nick, it always seems uh, lately, uh, last few years, we live in a, a, a very divisive world. You're either on that side of the issue or that side of the issue. Is this Does this say this is less about what team you're playing for and more about results? We, we don't care who's delivering this. This is what <laughs> we need. Absolutely. Actually, that's a really great way. You know, I think uh, for Canadians, less talk, more action is probably what they want, to, what they want from uh, all of the federal parties. And I think, I think for the liberals, you know, especially at the beginning of their mandate, at the very, very beginning in 2015, I think for many Canadians, they like what they heard from the, from the liberals. But even for those that kind of were very supportive of uh, the progressive policies on, you know, equality and reconciliation and the environment and all that other kind of stuff, um, they just haven't, the Liberals, for some voters, have not been moving fast enough, and they want to see results. And, and I think on the flip side of the equation, for those that are, are worried about the economy and just paying the bills, I think they think they have nothing to lose. Perhaps they don't, you know, they're not enthusiastic about Pierre Poiliev, but if you have nothing to lose, you can't pay for the rent, you're struggling to pay for the groceries, you're going to look at alternatives 
like Pierre Poiliev and the conservatives. Uh, you know, I'm a 60-year-old, Nick, and, you know, I don't remember ever voting and saying, you know, I love this person. This person is absolutely amazing. They totally represent everything that I am. Uh, what I, and I think, and maybe I'm wrong, most do, is like, I just don't want this person anymore. I want change. Do we vote for the personality? Do we vote for the change? Because it seems that this is all about personality, and, and we're forgetting that the majority just want something different. Actually, I think for a lot of voters, they vote based on perceptions of risk. They're not voting for a party, and they're not even voting for an individual. They might not even be voting for an issue, but they're voting based on risk. Who is the least risky choice? And hmm. uh, and and as a result, it's kind of well, it's kind of like Survivor Island for politicians. Yeah. Just getting voted off the island, and whoever's left might be a surprise, but. They're the last person uh, who hasn't been voted off the island. So I think right now it's perceptions of risk. Who is the least risky? And that's why I think for, for Pierre Poiliev to have a chance to win the next election, he has to portray himself as not a risky choice. Because what will happen is, is you remember in Ontario, some of those Ontario elections, right, with John Tory and Hudak yeah. and others. It was theirs uh, to lose. We, yeah. P- people started off thinking, okay, it's time for a change. The liberals are out. And then by the end of it, I think for many voters, they, they just like, I can't believe that they're voting for the Liberals because they were ready to vote for uh, for another party. Uh, but, you know, those alternatives turned out to be risky and people went back to the Liberals. So I think that's what the Liberals are hoping for. But for Pierre Poiliev, he just has to not be risky. Uh, I heard one reporter say that um, uh, the Liberals losing the younger voters, as you've pointed out, in women, which is unexpected, and men and such. So where is he gaining anywhere in any region, in any demographic, or holding his own? Or is he is he down in the mall? Well, he's down in a lot of regions. The one region that's still good for the Liberals, it's the kind of like the current bedrock, would be, the, would be Quebec. So they're still poised to do well in Quebec. Um, they don't have a lot of seats in the prairies, but they'll probably hold the few seats that they have. But when we get in Ontario, Ontario could be brutal for the uh, for the Liberals. You know, losing 15 to 20 seats just in the province of Ontario. They're also the Liberals are looking to have some setbacks in Atlantic Canada and British Columbia. Could be bad for the Liberals and good for both the NDP and the Conservatives. Nick Nano is with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nano's Research, the latest, uh, the liberals feeling the pressure from younger voters who are going elsewhere. Nick, thanks for the time and the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take it easy. Bye-bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked to Lorraine Somerville uh, a bazillion times about not only vehicles, but vehicle theft and what we can do to protect ourselves. Columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. She's here now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, the car's still in the driveway. But um, <laughs> let me ask you, where does Ontario, where do, where does our area, the GTHA, stand as far as vehicle thefts? Are we in the middle, uh, top, bottom? Where are we? Oh, we're terrible. We're the worst in the country. <laughs> there you go. It's, yeah, a billion-dollar loss last year, $700 million was in Ontario. And it's so uh, GTA. <laughs> and now, of course, when that sort of thing happens, obviously, many are asking what happens with insurance. Mm-hmm. And now Ontario drivers could be faced with uh, with with surcharges and such, depending upon the vehicle that they're driving in the area that they live. Is that accurate? Um, this is about the vehicle they're driving. This isn't even about the area. OK, and what what they've done, various insurance companies, you'll have to check with your broker and your insurance companies. But what they're doing is they've basically taken those top 10 stolen lists for the area and they're putting a 500 a lot of these companies are putting a $500 surcharge on your premium unless you get a tag protection system put mm-hmm. in it or CAA will let you use the club but what they're doing some of them will let you um, get money back like a rebate for putting these protective services in and then they'll take off the charge um, but if you don't want to do that, you're going to have to change companies. And I just finished writing a column about this for Monday. You should see the list of cars that are going to be not every insurance company, but a lot of them and a lot of the big ones. I mean, we're going from Honda CRVs, Highlanders, Lexus RX 350, Dodge Rams, Land Rover, Jeep Wranglers, uh, Grand Cherokees, Lexus, um, Highlander, Civics, 
Silverado's going back to 99 in some cases. Uh, again, not every company, and these are series, five or six years, depending on um, the theft rates that the payout is, but they're basically forcing you to put uh, a system on your car. So, and Lorraine, we've talked about this a bazillion times. So if the insurance companies are forcing the drivers to put this on, why the heck are the vehicle manufacturers not doing it? That's the bottom half of my column for Monday, because you're exactly right. <laughs> this is a big deal, though. AQK Association, that's um association that works with the insurance companies, the insurance bureaus, and with law enforcement. They're the ones that are always quoted when you hear about the stats and you know tightening up the ports and all those things. They have finally made a finished a study, which they're giving over to Transport Canada, because regulations haven't been updated since 2007. So that means we didn't have push-button ignitions in most cars back then. So they have said, and this is the quote from their president, which is amazing, uh, with consumers spending tens of thousands of dollars on a new vehicle, they should not be expected to absorb additional costs for an aftermarket immobilizer. <laughs> they are, they're demanding that manufacturers have to sell vehicles complete with immobilizers in them, and they have to be updated every three years to combat theft rates. This is a massive thing that they are finally going to Transport Canada saying it's time to update the regulations. So I am thrilled because I've been out in the wilderness yelling this all year and people are like, sit down and shut up. So it's nice. Well, and if you've heard anybody who's had a car stolen, it's like, it's, you know, other than a, a massive uh, violation of, of, <laughs> of yourself and everything else that goes along with being, you know, the victim of, 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 of robbery, uh, it, it's very easy to get your car replaced. Oh, yeah, there comes there. Bing, 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 bing. There it is. Yeah. And it, it yeah. seems like everybody's getting a piece of this action except for us. Well, I mean, we're getting gouged left, right, and center. And manufacturers have been absolutely mysteriously silent on this. Yeah. And, you know, they want subscription fees. They want you to pay to protect your car. And I'm like, yeah. that's BS. No, make your product so that it lives up to all the things that it should live up to. We demand it of everything else. How is this one thing supposed to be okay? You've made these cars so easy to steal. And I've been hearing about some new stuff they're doing. I'm not even allowed to talk about it yet. Oh, it's insanity. They knowingly do this. They know where the weak spots are and they don't plug the holes. And I swear every manufacturer is going to quit talking to me because I'm so angry. We you deserve know, the schmucks that pay for this. It's, it's, you, know, you pay $60,000 for a car, and it walks away, and they go, well, that means you buy another one. Yeah, yeah, we all yeah exactly. It's not just the people that lose them. It's all of us. We're all schmucks. We pay to, you know, through insurance. You know, I, I saw on our neighborhood uh, social media page, you know, uh, if you got a, if you got a garage, why aren't you putting your car in the garage if it's so valuable? Do, why don't we do that? But it, I've also heard anecdotally people will say, well, if I got replacement insurance, I'm not putting the most expensive one in the garage. I'm, I'm leaving the one that isn't got that coverage in the garage. It may be a few years older. And I'm putting the one that get, gets full replacement outside. And if it gets taken, big deal. Like, I'm thinking, holy smokes, what kind of logic is that? It's no logic. And it, it's really sad that this is the it is sad. that we're at. It, it's ridiculous. And I'm so sick of telling people, park your crappy car behind the good one, put a club, get an immobilizer. This is yep. all this aftermarket drama is ridiculous. But also thinking that it's a victimless crime. Stolen cars in Canada, we're a source place now around the globe. They're used yeah. for trafficking, bombs, gun running, terrorism, drugs. This is not a victimless crime. Car theft, especially all these high-end cars, are being used in armed, organized crime around the world. And it is absolutely terrible. We've got Interpol, Scotland Yard, RCMP, everyone working together finally because they realize people are dying. These our, our vehicles, a Range Rover out of Vaughan, can be used to blow up a mall, you know, somewhere in South Africa. It's nuts. Lorraine Sommerfeld with us, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. Ontario drivers whose vehicles are popular on the stolen list could now see a $500 surcharge by some insurers. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Keep up the good fight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. At what point do, do you take personal responsibility here and how are people to have trust 
in your leadership. Well, th thank you for that, Colin, and I'm, I'm sure you just walked down the street from your home, that you have a home. But do you know many people don't have a home, Colin? There's hundreds, hold on, there's hundreds of thousands of people that home, hold it. There's hundreds of thousands of people that don't have homes. Colin DeMello, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, dusting it up with the Premier, getting the important answers you need to know. It's 437, it's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today, and the Premier held a press conference today to talk about education, and you know where that went. Uh, let's bring in Colin DeMello, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. An interesting jousting match between you and the Premier today. Well, I wasn't intended on my part to be a jousting yeah. match. I mean, we are there as the Queen's Park Press Gallery to hold the government accountable without fear, without favor. And that was what we were doing. There was a series of questions asking the Premier why he's deciding to stick by Minister Steve Clark, why, uh, you know, why nobody's being held accountable. And what does it mean, really, when the buck stops with the Premier, if there is no action associated with that? And so today, that was our job to get those answers and we did. Instead, I also got a, a little bit more, let's say. Yeah, a little bit personal. Uh, and you handled that well, Colin. Good for you. Uh, uh, that being said, uh, I think many were surprised that the housing minister isn't stepping down. What are the reasons for him not? Because, again, you and the other reporters were saying, like, what's the repercussion here? Isn't that what normally happens with things like this? Why does the, uh, the premier say he still has confidence in this minister? Yeah, because the premier says that the problem was with the process and not the minister itself, although all of the reports have indicated that, yeah, the process was also the problem. But the housing minister, you know, was in charge of the team that led the process and therefore the housing minister is equally responsible here at Queen's Park. There's the idea of ministerial responsibility, and that means that once you get the you know high honor of being named the minister of the crown, uh, you have the responsibility over your staff to make sure that your staff follows the rules of the law and the regulations as, you know, you are governed by. And the integrity commissioner had found that, you know, not only did the minister of housing, Steve Clark, not want to, it seemed like, go ahead with this Greenbelt removal plan. He then tried to wash his hands of it. He understood that this was going to be politically sensitive, maybe explosive. And so he decided to, quote, stick his head in the sand and pass off the responsibility to his chief of staff, Ryan Amato. The problem is, Ryan Amato was inexperienced. He'd only been on the job for a few weeks. He had never been the chief of staff before and was, you know, taking this direction from the premier's office to remove these greenbelt lands. And he rushed through the process. It was chaotic. And in the meantime, developers were allowed to take advantage of that chaos by actually handing the government packages saying, these are the greenbelt lands that we want you to remove. And now we know that greenbelt lands have increased in value by a total of $8 billion. So you can see that there is a sequence of events here that have happened. And the integrity commissioner says the housing minister should have known what was happening in his own ministry, should have yeah. been had better oversight over what was happening, but he simply didn't. As to why <laughs> he's not being let go, that is an entirely different question, one that we did not quite get an answer to. So, uh, okay, he's decided to keep him for now. We don't know. Um, what's different now? How can Ontario, as you've all asked, have confidence? Um, what's different now that, that something's changed, it won't happen again, or that this is going to be looked at a lot more closely? Well, what's different is the 14 or 15 recommendations that we got from the Auditor General. She had 14 recommendations related to process, and the government says they're going to be implementing all of those recommendations. And, you know, that that means uh, complying with you know, the the rules that govern political staffers. Like, you, you can't be communicating on private email addresses or private cell phone text messages. You shouldn't be deleting emails. Um, you know, just making sure that there is a firewall between the people who stand to benefit from a government decision and the government decisions themselves. The government says that they're implementing this process, but this is not really being done in a very public fashion. And the people who oversaw the process before are, are in charge of implementing the process. So you can very quickly see that this is not going to be satisfactory to a lot of people here at Queen's Park. There are additional calls for investigations and public inquiries because people simply are not satisfied that they've gotten the whole story.
So are those 14 recommendations enough? Obviously, uh, those that, that do what you do at Queens Park are going to be watching incredibly closely and hammering away at this issue. Will this just, um, what will determine whether he steps down or not in the future? Do we know? Well, first of all, the Auditor General had 14 recommendations that the government is implementing, but there was a 15th. The 15th was to reverse the decision and replace, put the lands back into the green. The The government is not following that recommendation, which I I think many would argue is the central recommendation here. As to where this goes, I mean, let us not forget that, you know, the government might be trying to kind of march a little bit past this. But as long as the minister stays, there will be questions. The the interim leader of the liberals said there is a stench here that's going to stick to the premier the longer the premier backs his housing minister. Those Calls for resignations aren't going to go away. Uh, The RCMP is considering whether to investigate. The Information and Privacy Commissioner is looking into some of the deleted emails. There could be additional reports coming from the Integrity Commissioner. Uh, And, you know, the Premier ultimately will continue to face internal strife from cabinet ministers and from others who might be seeking to succeed him eventually. So this is definitely, there's a lot here at stake for the premier. And and I get the sense that he definitely senses that. If he didn't, that exchange that he had with me today wouldn't have been as thorny as it actually was, right? The premier is feeling the fire and this heat and he reverts back to this, you know, um, his his natural instinct of kind of lashing out or or hitting back. And that's what got him in trouble today. And let me tell you, there were cabinet ministers who were texting me today saying, hey, man, that was not cool, right? Progressive conservatives realized that that wasn't yeah, maybe yeah. the thing that should have happened. No, he, and, lost, and the he, he, he lost it on you and he shouldn't have. You're doing your job. Yeah, and the premier's office apologized, but it, it it does is it's emblematic of the fact that the premier is feeling a lot of pressure. So mm. it is safe to say that this story is far from over. So is the big gamble here calling for the premier? What's the bigger issue with Ontarians, the green belt issue or the housing crisis? Well, I think I mean I don't think the two of them are you know necessarily exclusive, right? I mean the the housing crisis definitely is one that everyone is facing, but it's not a short term strategy; it's a long term strategy, and it yeah. requires multiple levels of government from municipalities, uh, you know, with red tape and approvals to the actual developers using and acting on those permits once they once they've been approved to the province and whatever moves it's been making in the federal government as well. It seems to be a you know whole of government approach, and that's multiple levels of government. But the green belt issue isn't going away simply because, you know, it's not necessarily just about the green belt. I've made this argument before that, you know, a lot of people might not know where the green belt is. They might not be able to point it out in the map. But there is this growing understanding that for all of the people who might be encountering hardship in their lives. You know, they might be finding it expensive at the grocery store. Gas is expensive. It's expensive to pay your your housing bills. They're looking at a government that might not be doing much for them, might not be cutting taxes, might not be giving them a break with something or the other, might not be giving them a rebate check, but is helping developers. And those developers could be increasing their property values by $8 billion. And I think for the average Ontarian, that's where this sticks. So that ultimately is going to be the growing problem for this government. Because remember, Doug Ford is for the people. The question he's facing is, which people and like you said the housing crisis is not going away and the whole green belt issue that's going to be debated for the next couple of decades that's for sure colin Demello with his global news queens park bureau chief uh exciting day colin thanks for the clips much appreciated <laughs> thank you for having me we have talked a lot about uh, where your head is at in different uh, areas and demographics and such. Uh, with the latest news, uh, the, the federal liberals are feeling the crunch as uh, the younger voters are moving away from the liberals. And that's uh, normally been a hip sweet spot for them and instead moving to the other two parties. So what are the top issues on the minds of Generation Z or Z Canadians? Uh, is it changed over the last few years? Let's bring in Asaka Kischuk, Director of Strategy and Insight, Abacus Data, and here now. So first of all, let's talk about who Generation Z is. What age group are we talking about here? 
So Generation Z are folks who are 9 to about 26, 27 years old. Um, they're the generation that's in high school, the generation that's in university, and the generation that is entering the workforce in adulthood in what seems to be yet another time of change uh, going through the pandemic and now uh, economic uncertainty. Many people talk about generation gaps over the years and such, but there is quite a generation gap between the thought process of Gen Z and millennials, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, when we look at um, kind of young Canadians overall, the all the, the talk has been about uh, millennials for quite some time, but millennials uh, have hit the a lovely age of 40 years old now. And so their issues are a lot different than what we think of as on the minds of, of young people in Canada. So um, for, for Gen Z, they tend to care a lot about um, affordability, just given kind of the time that we're in, and then also social issues and issues that impact our society. How have things changed over the last few years regarding this cohort? And I mean, obviously, some of them have gone in, uh, gone on to the next and so on and so forth and are, and are later in life or at the earlier end of this uh, demographic. But how have how has their priorities changed over the years? Yeah, so I think like like any uh, generation was when they were younger, they're sort of full of, of hope and optimism and a mm. sense that things can can be better in the future. And so social issues really rose to the forefront, um, poverty and inequality, things like climate change, just doing um, doing things for the greater good. But as the generation has entered adulthood um, and is, is struggling to find a job, struggling to to now pay rent, let alone uh, buy a house, um, the affordability piece is, is quickly rising and has become the number one issue issue for this young generation. So there's there's still that sort of piece that a lot of younger generations have of sort of hope and optimism, and we need to carry everyone forward when we move forward. Um, but the affordability piece is becoming a, a challenge for more and more young people in trying to figure out how to put food on their table or or pay rent or or even find a job to, to imagine these things. We were talking just the other day about uh, a study that said that the, this generation is less optimistic and that they will have what their parents have. So that's, that's that's basically what you're speaking to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all the rage was sort of millennials and then housing. It's very true that that generation faced um, big challenges in terms of house prices and sort of living the dream, so to say. But I think uh, those problems are even more exacerbated for uh, Gen Z, who's facing um, unprecedented costs in housing. I think post-pandemic, things have sort of taken a turn that the folks didn't think um, would go so quickly. And so you're right, this sort of um, having what my parents have and, and getting to that place and, and what financial security really means is, is quite a bit different for these people. So what are the top issues of Gen Z? So the first up is the rising cost of living. Uh, next is housing affordability and accessibility. So unsurprising, it's kind of tied with affordability there. Um, healthcare is really important, uh, as is the economy. Um, climate change and then inequality and poverty are sort of top of the charts for these folks. Are you surprised how quickly it has changed? Because even when we're talking about the numbers of, of how the, uh, the, uh, the, the government, the liberal government is losing, the federal government is losing uh, the younger end of the demographic, it changed pretty quick, like in the last few months. Yeah, I mean, there's been a pretty uh, big sort of uh, whiplash in terms of, of votes and, and where they're coming from. I think it's been also a bit of a, a, a slow burn and sort of gradual change. We've been tracking sort of polling numbers for quite some time since the last election. And the accessible voters for the Liberals has been sort of shrinking and shrinking over time. And I think... Um, more recently, the news coming out that's the startling is that the generation that sort of saved uh, the liberals at the polls is is not so willing to, to go to bat for them anymore. Uh, I think because these issues are sort of growing and, and coming out of the pandemic, um, there's sort of this lagging, oh, well, well things will just get better. Um, but they're not. They're, they're getting worse. And there's still talks that a recession will, will come. And, and these conversations have been ongoing for some time. Oksana Kischuk with us, Director of Strategy and Insights, Abacus Data, Top Issues of Gen Z, uh, Costs, Housing, Healthcare, Economy. Boy, things have changed. Oksana, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about uh, pretty much all afternoon the housing situation and, of course, the news conferences earlier today by the Premier and the Housing Minister. Many thought the Housing Minister would step down 
or be gone in some way. And the premier announcing today, nope, he's got full faith in him. It was the system. It was the process. It wasn't uh, the leadership. And uh, I'm not sure that's going to cool the jets of uh, many who are um, after the uh, premier on this file. Let's bring in MPP Donna Skelly for a conversation about the green belt. She is here now. MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. Donna Skelly, thanks for taking the time. Anytime, anytime. So, Donna, I know, <laughs> I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, but uh, <laughs> why not just replace the minister and rather than taking this heat and having to come on the show and explain why you didn't, uh, why didn't he just not let him go? I don't, you know, I, I, it's a really good question. Um, in many situations, you would see in this situation, the minister would either step down or, or be asked to step down. But um, I, I think that it's, can you hear me, Scott? Yep, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I, I was just getting some feedback there. Sorry, I think that, you know, the Premier does. He said he's, he has full faith in him. This is a difficult file. These were difficult decisions. He has apologized. He should have had better oversight. But the Premier makes the file, has the final say. He's the boss. And uh, at this point, Minister Clark stays in the job that he has. Uh, you know, at this point on, moving forward, as if the uh, if, if the critiquing and, and the examination isn't been strong enough, they're going to be looking at this guy with a magnifying glass now, trying to find a a loose thread. Uh, how can Ontarians be convinced? Because this is what the opposition is saying that that this is fixed. How can how can the how can Ontarians have confidence in this minister? Well, it's interesting that you're prefacing it with you know they're going to be looking for something. There were two. Um, inquiries, one from the Auditor General, one from the Integrity Commissioner, and really what they're suggesting, the issue has been a flaw with the process and a flaw with lack of oversight. Um, Two significant investigations have not uncovered anything I would say is, is, um, you know, really, really damaging. I mean, Mm. if, if it's lack of oversight, there were allegations and certainly miscommunication that there's a, a criminal investigation. There isn't. The RCMP has been asked to look whether there should be. And um, I give you credit. I give credit actually to a number of your colleagues for clarifying exactly what has, has unfolded following these two investigations. The reality is the biggest issue is there hasn't been enough oversight and the process is flawed. We have to build homes. I know this sounds like a broken record, But I worked at City Council. There are so many obstacles in place to getting anything done in many municipalities. And unfortunately, Hamilton falls in. It takes a long time to get anything built. And we don't have time. Uh, This was an area that was neglected for years, partly because uh, we didn't have uh, an economy that attracted people to Ontario. Now we do. We are creating jobs. People are moving here. On top of that, we have had an announcement by the federal government that they're going to be increasing substantially the number of new Canadians that they are allowing in. And most of those people come to Ontario and 90% of them end up in the GTHA. We have a really significant problem. We have to address it. Scott, when we talk about the green belt, and I know that uh, many people say it should never, ever, ever be touched. I'm not sure they even understand how the green belt <laughs> yeah. was created. I mean, we and, and you know, and here's the other thing. So, sorry to interject, Donna, but here's the other thing. If we're talking about this now, and there's a housing shortage now, this ain't going away. We're going to be having this debate for the next 20 years. For Ham- Ontario, rather, will be have a population of 20 million people in nine years. Think about it. Think yeah. about that. And where are they going to live? Here. They will live here. They're not going to Thunder Bay. They're not going to Red Deer. They're not going to Sudbury. They're coming here. And one of the properties, for example, the Lower Stony Creek property that was in the Greenbelt, how it ever ended up in the Greenbelt is beyond me. And it was the city that said, take it out. We complied. It's now been removed. The Mm. section in my riding that we're talking about was in the White Belt. The developers owned it. It wasn't owned by a farm. It wasn't being farmed. It was earmarked for development. That was years ago. Had those homes been built years ago, they probably would have cost about $200,000. Now, because this was in 2005, now we're talking about $800,000. Every year we delay 
shovels in the ground. We delay the construction of a home. You see that house increase substantially, 20, 30, 40%. We have to get homes built. And anytime we see something going up in the city of Hamilton, people get upset because they don't want to see change in their neighborhoods. And sometimes they are right. I wouldn't want to see a 20-story tower next to my house. I wouldn't. But if we don't expand our boundary, where will people live? Yeah. Where do they want to live? We have to build homes. And, and the whole, the whole um, concept of the Green Belt is, is it's a really misunderstood. The land that was removed was never owned by Ontarians. It was never no, owned by the no. provincial government. This no. is owned by developers who sold it to other developers, and they've sat on this land for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Much of it has never, ever seen. There's a piece actually in, in Waterdown that hasn't been removed. It should have been removed, and I'd like to ask, actually, Ted McMeekin, because I think he was the one that put it in the green belt. There's development all around it. It's very similar to the one down in Lower Stony Creek. Stryker is across the road. It's on Parkside. It has development homes on either three sides, and it's a farm that hasn't been farmed for 50 years. That is a natural extension of Waterdown, but it's in the green belt. It makes no sense. None whatsoever. It's not being farmed. There's just chunks of concrete on it, but that should be developed. It's all service, but we're I'm not, not touching sh- it. I'm not sure how the councillor can speak on this when, after being the housing minister during the Wind government, when all of this should have been uh, but talked about. I think about. it was under his jurisdiction that that land was pulled yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, the one thing, and we've only got a few minutes left or a few seconds left here, Donna, the one thing about this Green Belt debate, what it has done, it has brought to the surface that 20 to 40 years of land that is available between those boundaries uh, outside of the Green Belt and why it hasn't been developed and why it and why it isn't available now and why that hasn't helped to the housing shortage, because the people that don't want to build on the Green Belt don't want to build on those lands either. They don't want to build. They don't want. I don't know where they think. And and Scott, condo living is great for some people, but it's not great for everyone. And now we've yeah. got a, a hands taking over parks, and we have yeah. to close. If kids are living in a condo unit, and the only park where they can play has been shuttered for the summer for health reasons, where do you expect these kids to play? It's just. Yeah. You know, it's it's silly to think that there isn't land that can be developed. And the prop and, and the irony in all of this, the people that don't want any development on the green belt are forgetting that we're growing the green belt. So are they saying let's continue, let's keep it at the existing size and not expand it? Is that what they're suggesting? That the land that we're bringing in should just be put taken back out? It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. Yeah, but this is not a something because we are going to be paying the price if we do not build housing. Yeah, this is not a black and white issue, and uh, this debate's going to be going on for decades. Donna Skelly, MPP Flamborough, Glambrook on the Greenbelt issues. Donna, thanks for the time. Good luck. Anytime. Let's talk energy. Quebec and Ontario have agreed to swap energy with each other when uh, demands are peaking. Uh, we're talking about 600 megawatts of energy each year going back and forth. And to talk more about this, Jim Cotton is with us, director of the McMaster Institute for Energy Studies and a professor of mechanical engineering. And here now, Jim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you very much. So, Jim, how do you swap energy? How do you, uh, you, can you bank it? How do we, how do we transfer energy back and forth between province? How does that work? So we, you're not really swapping energy. Um, we will have peaks at different times than Quebec. Um, so, for example, next week, we're expecting a heat dome, humidity in our humidex in the range of 40. We will be experiencing uh, an energy peak. So everybody's air conditioners will be on at the same time. Um, Quebec has a lot of capacity and they will be able to use basically their transmission system, our existing six interties, uh, to uh, transfer electricity through that transmission system to Ontario. Um, and vice versa, uh, Quebec is primarily heated by uh, not, uh, elect- electrical heating. Um, electrical resistive heating and now heat pumps more recently, and their peaks are in the wintertime. And in our wintertime, we have a lot of wind capacity, uh, so we can transfer our electricity through the same system to them uh, when they need it the most. 
One of my first questions until obviously uh, reading deeper into all of this was that don't they both have uh, dips and dives and in, in, in increases at the same time? But obviously they don't, because you would think with the two provinces being relatively close, well, close to each other, next to each other, that they would be peaking and dipping at the same time. But that's not the case. No, it's mostly because of heating. Um, so we heat our homes primarily by natural gas, yeah. uh, where Quebec primarily through electricity. So their peaks tend to be in the wintertime. Their te- peaks tend to be when people get up in the morning, they turn all of, all of their equipment on, uh, the coffee makers, uh, et cetera, uh, get ready to go for work, and they have a peak. And then when they come home, they have another peak. Um, where we typically have a peak is in the hot summer days, uh, like we had in July. Uh, that was our peak this year for July 4th, 5th, and 6th in that area and those corresponded to the hottest temperature of the year so they're completely out of sync um so this is a, a beautiful agreement uh between uh quebec and ontario and we should be doing way more of it and do we have uh, both provinces have that much of an abundance that this is easy to do or is it just we don't need it you can have it uh you know what it at, at times is the answer so um in the winter time we can have quite a bit of excess energy um, in particular, because we have a lot of renewables. In fact, we curtail energy. That means that energy from uh, wind turbines uh, or Niagara Falls or even our, our nuclear fleet sometimes doesn't even reach the wires uh, because there's not demand. Because ener- in our system, um, in all electricity systems, you can't bank it. You, uh, If you have demand, you have to supply the exact amount. If not, you have to stop the wind turbines from spinning. So this gives us an opportunity uh, to use that asset and and, and support our, our neighboring province. With technology, are we close to banking energy, Jim, or is that just is that a pipe? It, it's a ways point? away. Uh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of talk about uh, pumped hydro um, up in, uh, I think it's Meaford area. Uh, that would help a lot. Um and it would be even bigger than this. Um, there's batteries that are coming into play, uh, but we would need incredible amounts of batteries mm. to do this. Uh, so right now, um, the answer is we we just don't use it. So um, if we can uh, work with our, our neighboring um, uh, provinces, um, it helps both of us. Uh, obviously, Quebec and Ontario have uh, have access to some some very green and clean energy. Uh, how do we increase our production? Uh, we we've we've always had an abundance of it. There really hasn't been times too much where there's been shortages. Usually, it's it's infrastructure issues and such like that. Um, with, with EVs and the transition coming, how are we prepared for an increased demand? Are we producing enough? Uh, so right now we're okay, uh, but it, moving to 2030, you're gonna, we're going to be a little bit tight. Uh, part is that, of that is because we're going through some uh, refurbishments of our nuclear f- fleet. Uh, so that'll take some of our, our nuclear reactors offline. Um, that will, in the short term, have to be replaced by something we can build quickly um, and that is flexible. And, and right now, the plan of the province is natural gas. Uh, this this plan right now will will limit some of that uh, build out of natural gas. Uh, moving forward, uh, the province has made some very significant announcements around new uh, nuclear, um, in particular, uh, essentially doubling the size of Bruce and adding four small modular reactors uh, to uh, the the site in in Pickering. Uh, nuclear energy has changed a lot over the years since the days of Pickering. Absolutely. Uh, so the reactors we're talking about right now are small modular reactors. They're about 300 megawatts compared to CANDU. Um, I think there will be more large reactors uh, for sure, because if, if you think about as we move forward, we try to decarbonize everything, electric vehicles coming into play, industries trying to uh, reduce their carbon footprint by using more electricity. And just Ontario will start to move to electrical heating as well. Um, in some mm. forms. So I think there's uh, going to be a change over time. And uh, if, if we don't do this carefully, the amount of electricity that we're going to need is going to be very, very significant. Getting back to uh, uh, Quebec and Ontario and the deal to to provide each other with power, how much of a how much padding does this give us? How much runway does this give us? How long can we do this before we do have to seriously add more? 
Uh, it's I think it's five years. Um, it's really? 600 megawatts. It's three percent of our of our peak. Um, so it's fairly small. It would probably be the size of one uh, relatively small gas plant. Um, so it, it's it's not a lot, but it's a, a good first step, um, and it benefits both provinces. Can we shoot hydro right the way, or electricity rather, right the way across the country? Should we have lines that do this everywhere? Uh, it, it's it, there's potential to do that. Um, I think just if we look at uh, corridors between um, our neighboring provinces, that's the most uh, logical. Um, so Manitoba and Quebec. Um, there's a lot of losses associated with uh, doing that across the, the province. And and again, you sort of mentioned this before. Uh, our, provi- our, our provinces are not that different, right? So right mm. now, the main difference between Quebec and Ontario is just the way we heat our homes. Um, and Quebec has an awful lot of hydroelectric power. Um, moving forward, they're going to start running out of that hydroelectric power, just like we're going to run out of everything uh, here in Ontario, because we are starting to electrify everything. Um, and and our peaks aren't going to be that different. So um, I think the the solution is more in in terms of how we conserve energy, how we use resources that we already have within our communities. My research is all about uh, recovering uh, waste heat uh, from from industry, from things like our, our hockey arenas or grocery stores. Mm. You know, we have enough waste energy in this province to heat our all of our homes. So that's just a different infrastructure play uh, that we have to really start thinking about as we as we move uh, towards uh, a lower carbon society. Many complain as we try to get away from a lower carbon society, we should have had a cross country pipeline of some sort. Is there still a need for that? Is there are we going to need that liquid natural gas to supplement this? Uh, so the answer is. It's, I don't know how long we will be needing that gas because the prior, mm-hmm. priority is to decarbonize by 2050. So that's a lot of infrastructure to go all the way across the province. Right now, it's critical. Um, you can see what's happening in Europe when their yeah. natural yeah. gas was cut off, right? Um, we need, we live in a cold climate and, and we heat our homes by natural gas. And that's going to take some time uh, to transition off of that because we have all of this embedded infrastructure. And then there is opportunity uh, as we move forward and as the technology improves for uh, for a, a green natural gas uh, from renewables, for example, or integrated or hydrogen into that, we're already doing pilots in that in that area, um, and the technology is there. So th- there's the infrastructure will not go to waste. Um, it may not just not be fossil fuels from hmm. uh, Alberta. That's an interesting point. Jim Cotton with us, director of McMaster Institute for Energy Studies, professor of mechanical engineering, talking about a deal between Quebec and Ontario to uh, give power to each other. Jim, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via email from Leonard, the Greenbelt versus the housing crisis. Maybe we should forget the communities and just let people camp and live in the bush in the Greenbelt. That way you get both. Three houses are the future. Keep right except to pass. 